Should I give my kids money? Should I make them work for the money? Should I talk about money? When is it too early to talk about money with my kids? Join me with my guest, Dr. Ashley LaBerre Black on how to teach your kids about money. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Oh, no, it doesn't. Finances, that is, does not need to be that most hated F word. And that is why we are doing this podcast. If you've been enjoying this podcast, if you've been enjoying the guest of this podcast, please do me a favor, head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. It really would mean a lot to me. So thank you. As a father of two, this episode was extremely informative for me. And even if you don't have kids, the lessons and insight learned from this episode will help you navigate your own money relationship and also what you learned about money from your parents. What I really appreciated from this episode was how Ashley shared with us, you, the listeners, and myself, the latest research. What is that research telling us around how kids learn about money from their parents? The reason why I appreciate her insights in this episode is because often we hear many times individuals' perspectives and experiences on how they teach their kids about money. And often these suggestions are very valuable and we can gain insights. But the thing about individual suggestions or experiences is that they're just that. They're individual. And from being a father, I have learned that kids are so different. Each kid learns different and what worked for one kid doesn't necessarily work for another kid. Of course, we can learn from individual situations of other people's success stories. But The thing that I really appreciate from this episode is Ashley shares with us what does the latest research show us on what effectively works on how to teach your kids about money. The research has looked at hundreds of different kind of kids, families, and environments. And during this episode, Ashley shares with us the common practices and suggestions that work for the greatest number of people on how to teach your kids about money. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, I am pleased to have Dr. Ashley LeBaron Black. Ashley is an assistant professor of family life at Brimham Young University in Provo, Utah. She received a PhD in family studies and human development from the University of Arizona. Her research focuses on family finances, which we are definitely going to be talking about today, including couple and financial socialization. Ashley has published 27 peer-reviewed articles which is a lot, actually, and, <laughs> and is on the editorial board for the Journal of Family and Economic Issues. She is the chair of Family Financial Wellbeing Focus Group for the National Council on Family Relation and co-chair of the Finances Topic Network for the Society for the Study of Emerging Adulthood. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. 
maybe it's because I have two kids and I have a wife. So this is a very <laughs> applicable conversation for me. But I think it's applicable conversation for everyone. We're going to be talking about talking, socializing, talking with your children about money and your spouse. If we get there, we might just keep on the children. But nonetheless, I think these are skills that are transferable to even conversations that we have about to ourselves. And Mm -hmm. often on this podcast, we talk about the stories that we tell ourselves. They're the most powerful stories in our lives because they create our reality. They create our future self because we are story-making machines and we apply a meaning to those stories. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we hear from people like you to hear your story, what you're doing, what your research, what you have found in the research, and so that we can apply it to our, our own lives. So in the name of storytelling, maybe just tell a bit about your story, how you got to studying and doing your PhD in the fields you picked, and then um, we'll get into the research side. But yeah, tell us your story. Yeah, for sure. So um, I grew up in Utah, went to Brigham Young University for my undergraduate, and my story is kind of a lesson in how powerful a good mentor or it can be. Mm. I started my undergrad as an art history major and just for fun took a class called Strengthening Marriage and Family by uh, his name is Dr. Jeff Hill. And at the end of that semester, he asked if I wanted to be his teaching assistant for the course and I really enjoyed it. So I was like, I'm sure I could use some money. And I, I, because that was really fun, I took other family life courses and ended up making it my minor and then eventually ended up making it my major. And anyway, was uh, planning to, you know, kind of take some years off after I graduated and then uh, maybe go get a degree in like marriage and family therapy and maybe be a therapist. And then one day, my last semester of my bachelor's degree, I had two professors that that one that I had mentioned that I worked with all through college and then another one too, who I was close with. They both, within a week of each other, sat me down and said, hey, you'd make a great professor, you know, do what you want with your life. But just so you know, like, you're cut out for this, like, you could do it. (laughs) So I was like, what? Okay, like, I'd never, like, dreamt that big. And um, anyway, so I, I ended up staying at BYU for a master's in marriage, family, and human development, which was like a pre PhD research heavy, stats heavy master's. And then PhD at the University of Arizona in family studies and human development. And I'm a professor. So mentors can really shape life trajectory, Mm -hmm. at least in my experience. And as far as getting involved in family finance, that Jeff Hill, that professor I mentioned, he was researching family finance. And so after I became a teaching assistant, he asked if I wanted to be his research assistant. And I was like, okay. And so for a while, family finance was just what I was going to research until I figured out what I was actually passionate about. But I became super passionate about family finance. So that's still what I'm doing today. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we speak of inflection points and what an inflection point he had on, on your life to, to make that suggestion. Yeah. In line with stories, we all have our, our own money stories. Is there anything that I guess is outside the research again, and I apologize for that. However, hey, this is uh, this is our story. But uh, <laughs> yeah. looking back now, zooming out and looking back at your past, are there any moments or situations or teachings that your family taught you about money or things you observe now as an adult that drew you to 
being interested in family finances? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. My, I, I have awesome parents. So a couple of things. Once when I was about probably about 10 years old and I'm one of uh, five kids. So wow. my parents sat my siblings uh, and me down And I don't know if we'd been acting like kind of spoiled or entitled recently, but they sat us down and they got out the Monopoly game that we had and they counted out in Monopoly money. They said, this is how much we make every month. And it was like a 10 year old. I was like, whoa, like (laughs) so much money. And then from that stack, they counted out this how much our mortgages every month, you know, just to live in this house, it costs this much. And then they counted out, this is how much our cars cost. This is how much we have to spend just to buy groceries and just eat food, uh, utilities, just to be warm and be able to turn the lights. And basically once they got through like all the necessities, there was like a a little stack left (laughs) at the end. And so that was hugely eye-opening as a kid to, you know, first, there were several take-home lessons. First of all, we're really lucky. We have all our needs met and we even have a little bit left over at the end, you know, and just a realistic view of this is how much real world costs. Life is expensive. And then, um, you know, just to less entitled that we can have some of the things that we want because we're, you know, really blessed, but you know, this is why we say no to some things is because this is the little stack we're working with at the end of the day. So that was very impactful. And then another time, I remember we lived in a more upper middle class neighborhood. And my mom once took us, we were, you know, driving. And she's like, actually, why don't we take a detour today? And we went and drove through um, the most like low income, like trailer park neighborhoods, which I had never even seen before in my very privileged upbringing. And it was super eye-opening to just see how other people even down the street live, you know, much less people in um, poorer parts of the world. And then after that, she said, actually, why don't we take it a step further? And so for Christmas that year, instead of just getting a whole bunch of unneeded gifts, you know, we already had toys and stuff. We decided to go take Christmas to a family that my parents knew who um, were having a really hard year that experience helped me to kind of, you know, get outside of my selfish little bubble and realize that money can be used as a tool to help other people too. So. Wow. Now having studied and researched financial socialization from parents to kids, <laughs> my, my, my gut wants to say, so how did your parents do? But I, I won't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> regardless of, <laughs> there's no right answer to that, but these are Again, we talked to inflection points, inflection points in our lives that I, I do feel that as parents, sometimes we don't realize that those experiences are so memorable in our children's minds and that they shape their ultimate reality. Because I know for my two kids are two and four, they, I could tell them, ah, my five, four, he's almost five. He questions thing now, but they just take everything that we say as truths. So yeah. as parents trying to do the best they can for their children around money, having conversations. What has your research shown you on how, first, how do kids, let's go there first. How do kids actually learn from our parents? Is it just when we sit them down for Monopoly or is there more at play? 
Yeah, great question. Uh, the research has found that, um, well, researchers doing research have found that there's kind of three main ways that kids learn about money from their parents. And by the way, in the research, it's just by far parents have the most impact on kids' financial learning, like more than the influence of like school financial literacy classes, media, peers, work experience combined. People learn so much about money from their parents, whether parents are being intentional about it or not. So I just like, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, hugely important that we try to be intentional. And that's like, I would say to any parents who are, you know, actually thinking, Oh, how, you know, how am I teaching my kids about money? That's like an awesome first step because they are going to learn so much from you, whether you mean to or not. (laughs) So, Hmm. um, anyway, so there's, yeah, there's three main ways that kids learn about money from their parents. The first is uh, through modeling. So like the example that parents set for their kids, again, whether on purpose or not, that's just, you know, as humans, we learn through observation, especially kids watch their parents. And like you said, however parents do, it must be right. So Mm. however parents manage money, kids learn from that as to how they should manage money. And then the second way is kind of more what you were saying, parent-child financial discussion, whether it's like sit down conversations or just, you know, in passing, like kids asking questions or, you know, at the grocery store, things like that. And then the third, um, and maybe the most important way is we call it experiential learning. So kids actually learning through hands-on experiences with money. And sadly, you know, a lot of kids are especially um, more privileged kids are kind of shielded from hands-on experiences with money to their future detriment. Because we know now that actually getting practice, handling and managing your own money, you know, even in little amounts as a kid builds your financial self-efficacy and the confidence you feel handling money, which is associated with lots of good financial outcomes later in life. So it's important for kids to be given room to make mistakes with money in like a safe environment where parents are there to help, you know, kind of explain, you know, what happened and maybe what you can do differently later. And there's not long-term consequences. Hopefully kids, you know, we're not giving them too much money. So it's better for kids to learn through mistakes when they're growing up than when they're emerging adults later. And, you know, we're talking about much larger chunks of money. So anyway, those are the three ways. Happy to talk more about any of those three, but, you know, it's awesome if parents can be intentional about all three approaches and, you know, using uh, if kids can learn from a good example and from us telling them how to do it and then them actually getting to practice that, it's a really powerful combo. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I jotted down quite a few notes here. Thank you for those three. Yeah. Now, one word you said that I, I, I just want you to explain. I don't know if you said self, but financial efficacy or self-efficacy. Can you just explain to to listeners what that means? Yes. Financial self-efficacy is how confident you feel managing money. It's funny because all of us, once we hit adulthood, we have to manage money. It's not really a choice, right? Like we, we, you know, there's finances that we have to deal with, but people who are more confident that they are capable at managing money, that they're good at it, regardless of whether they actually are or not, if, if you're more confident about it, then you tend to have more healthy financial behaviors, you're more financially independent, and you're more financially satisfied with your situation. This is an observation, but from your, your yeah. guys' research is that I think that's a big point because often we try to educate the heck out of people so that they can become technically sound and they know how to 
so to speak, balance their budgets. But if they don't have that self-efficacy or that confidence in them themselves, I'm hearing that your guys' research or the research you're reading is is showing that that self-efficacy is more important. And the reason why I really want to highlight that is because you said a key thing that I want to touch on now is that experiential learning. Uh-huh. So the monopoly maybe. Mm-hmm. But I want to expand on the value of allowing them to make mistakes. And I have had many conversations with parents about, oh, I'm teaching them about money. My parents didn't teach me about money. So I'm teaching them about money. I'm giving them money and they got to save half of it, spend half of it and do this and do this. And as I hear them talking, I'm, I, it's almost like it's a very rigid approach. And if yeah. I was the child, I'd be like, whoa, okay. But I'm scared to make a mistake. So can you speak yeah. to the link between giving them time and space to make a mistake and building that self-efficacy? Yeah, totally. And I think there's, yeah, I think what, there's, you know, some good things to what you're saying and probably some, I mean, everything we know for just parenting in general, uh, you know, you've got to have some limits with some latitude. If, you know, if we only give kids strict limits then they never have room to make mistakes or grow or actually make choices for themselves. But if we give them too much latitude then they, you know, never learn actually, mm. you know, what's you know correct behaviors and things like that. So the same could probably be applied here to experiential learning that, um, you know, teach them some correct principles, maybe give them some limits, but then, yeah, if you're not giving them room to actually make financial choices, they'll never learn to make their own financial choices. And then after they leave home, you're not there anymore to actually, you know, to be telling them every little thing to do with their money. So the goal is that by the time they leave home, they're self-sufficient with the money that they, um, you know, they have that self-efficacy that they're confident handling money because they know how to do it because they've, you know, they've done it themselves um, without you having to tell them exactly how to spend every cent. Mm. Are there experiential learning, I guess, situations that can, are, are that some are more healthy and maybe some that are more harmful that you've seen or is just the fact mm-hmm. of doing it the the point here? I think the main point is, is doing it. Yes. And there's all three of the methods of, you know, how kids learn can be applied to any particular financial topic or financial principle that parents want to instill in them. So like, if you want your kids to know about saving, then like with experiential learning, you, you know, would take them to the bank and have them actually open up their own saving account, or maybe you have them save a certain percentage of their money towards, you know, long-term goals or whatever. Um, so I, yeah, I think whatever the, whatever financial uh, principle or financial knowledge you're trying to pass on to them, you know, you can show them that you do that. You can, you can model that behavior for them. You can, it's probably important to have like discussions with them about, um, you know, there's probably just good financial knowledge they need to know about that subject. But then, you know, the kind of real capstone where it's actually instilled in their own uh, financial values and attitudes and behaviors is going to be them actually getting to put that into practice, which for any financial, you know, topic, they're going to need to actually have money. So that's like step one for parents, I guess, is somehow get money into your kids' hands. And I, there's various opinions about, you know, allowances are good or allowances Mm. are bad or tied to chores or not tied to chores. And we haven't really seen definitively in the research, whether there's a better way or a, you know, a not good way to do that. So I would say, you know, could just kind of choose however you think will work best for your family, how exactly to get 
some money into kids' hands, but um, but that use you know use that as their money for them to put into practice the things that you're trying to teach them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you bring up the allowance part because I hear that often. What I'm hearing you say is don't get caught up in the nuance of allowance, whatever you call it. These three areas, not potentially, is where the energy should be put on is the financial discussions, modeling healthy behaviors and allowing time and space for experiential learning. When we talk about financial modeling, I can assume that it's important that we have healthy behaviors so that we can model healthy behaviors. Right. Let's talk about if we haven't taken some time to understand the role of money, the money story that's going on in our our minds, could there be a counter effect? Or I'm assuming there's a, a counter effect if we don't have a healthy relationship and now we're imparting that on our children? Yeah, great question. We actually, we're still kind of uh, exploring this in the research, but preliminarily what we've seen so far is that, so if parents are good with money, you know, if they're what we would call, you know, good money managers, their kids, and if they give their kids opportunities to observe that. So, you know, some parents are great with money, but if they budget behind closed doors, Mm. their kids will never learn from that good example. So, um, you know, first, if parents are good with money and facilitate opportunities for their kids to actually observe that, then yeah, that is associated with those kids later when they're emerging adults. So age 18 to 30, we see those kids having more healthy financial behaviors. Mm -hmm. if parents aren't good with money. But even parents who aren't great with money themselves, we found that sometimes kids, um, especially parents who are like intentional about just trying to teach them anyway, even though they they know that they're not perfect with money, kids can actually learn really important lessons from their parents' poor financial Mm -hmm. behaviors. So yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes it does have a negative effect if parents aren't great with money, but, but especially if we're, you know, teaching kids or trying to learn together, then kids are able to, as they grow up and learn more about money themselves, be able to identify what was good and not so good in their parents' behaviors and fix it in their own. Okay. Wow. Interesting. As you're explaining that part, it made me think of situations we hear all the time where there might be generational wealth into families. Mm -hmm. And money's passed on to people and it might get spent quickly in some cases it might not but we might also look at family companies we see this all the time where the son gives given for the most part a company and the company maybe doesn't survive the next generation Mm -hmm. i feel like this speaks to your point earlier about building that confidence creates that self-efficacy which is more important than the skill in and itself so i think that's just really refreshing for parents to know is that we might not have an abundant amount of money, but providing that skill of confidence is extremely important when we look at these financial outcomes. Yeah. What about the relationship I have with a parent? So let's go back to the company. Say I'm a, I have a big company. Uh, This is hypothetical. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm working 90 hours a week, making tons of money, have a nice trust fund. I'm trying to teach my son. I'm bringing him into the company or my daughter. And, you know, there might be some hostility because I was never around. How does the actual parent relationship impact the child being able to learn these healthy financial behaviors to create healthy outcomes in their future? It's a great question. And one that, yeah, we have research supporting the fact that 
parents' financial, you know, financial teaching efforts are either helped or hurt by their relationship they have with their kids. So parents who are warm with their kids, close with their kids, um, like if you're familiar with attachment styles, Mm -hmm. kids who are securely attached to their parents, parents' financial lessons they're trying to instill in their kids are going to be more um, internalized than if you don't have a great relationship with your kids. So yeah, that's actually like a precursor to before you even, you know, try to teach them about money or get them on board with whatever your financial values are. They're not going to listen to you unless they feel, you know, loved and heard and cared for by you and there's trust there. So yeah, that, that, that applies to really anything parents are trying to do with their kids. It's parenting efforts are much more successful if there's um, a warm relationship there. Yeah. Oh, I just had a flood of thoughts of like people who've chased money or pursued money and made money potentially, but jeopardized relationships. Yeah. How they then try to repair those relationships with money. Yes. And, you know, it's disheartening because we might be fed or prescribed a certain vision that you make this money, you're going to be happy, but time just flew by. I like what a lot of you, a lot of what you're saying is for the most part, relatively simple. Mm-hmm. Spend some time with your kid. Make sure that they mm-hmm. enjoy being around you. Yeah. Teach them Monopoly or whatever. And you don't need a ton of money to be able to make it financially like a successful outcome. Yeah. Yep. That's great. As a parent listening, based on your knowledge and your research on these three elements, say they're listening and wow, like me and you, we've, we dive into money conversations. You're into the research. This is what we live and breathe every day. A parent listening has to go to work, has to take care of their kid, has to yes. change their poopy diapers, has to do all these things that like really strength our cognitive bandwidth. And hearing this information yes. might sound so like like good, but it might it might sound overwhelming. What would you say yeah. to a parent listening who are like, okay, I want to start doing this, but maybe I mean, I, when you said having that healthy relationship with your kid, I'm like, whoa. I hope I have that. I mean, what about that time when I let him sleep or I let him cry too long and this and that? Yes, I know. It can be overwhelming. <laughs> what would you say to parents listening who really, really want to aspire to create those skills in their children to build that financial efficacy? Great question. Let me first speak to parents who might be overwhelmed. And then let me speak to parents who might be uh, like financially stressed. Perfect. So for parents who are just, you know, busy, overwhelmed, they're already trying to, you know, do all these other parent, you know, we, we get parenting advice left and right now <laughs> from all sorts of places. And so, you know, that, like you said, on top of everything else parents have going on in their lives, it can feel like too much. So there's this phrase we call good enough parenting, mm. where you're probably not going to mess up your kids too much if you're a good enough parent, at least, you know, or if your kids turn out crappy anyway, it probably wasn't your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so be a good enough parent where the, you know, the most important things are that their basic needs are taken care of physical needs and, you know, emotional needs. And then anything on top of that is just, you know, icing on the cake. So if you if you have the you know, capacity to maybe choose one thing in each of the methods that you're going to try for the next year. And then a year later, you can reevaluate what your kid needs, what you have the capacity for and, and try something new in each of the three categories. But, you know, maybe think, okay, as a, 
how are my kids learning from my example? So either yourself make one positive change in your own finances, or maybe just think of a way that your kids could observe you. Maybe, you know, change where you budget, budget out on the kitchen table and let your, you know, invite your kids Mm. to come watch you or something. So one thing in that category, discussion, maybe plan just one sit down conversation about, you know, one financial topic with your kids, experiential learning, you know, just do make one change to give your facilitate financial experiences for your kids. So you don't have to do all three methods for every financial topic, but, you know, just start small and you'll probably, um, as you know, we practice things, they become more natural and don't take as much time or effort. So if parents just start, they'll probably um, just do these things more without it feeling so overwhelming. Mm. That's, that's that advice. And then for parents who are, you know, going through hard financial times themselves, that, yeah, people are, parents are sometimes worried that talking about money or anything related to money is going to be stressful for their kids. They don't want to pass on that financial stress Mm. to their kids. And there's a few things that we've learned about that. So the first is that if there's financial stress in the home, kids are going to be feeling it anyway. Mm. It's already impacting them and it can actually lessen the kid's stress if it's out in the open and talked about. And if they know it's something that they, that you, you know, welcome questions about so that you can then ease their mind, you know, so it's good to explain to kids what's going on. Research has found just being open about the family's finances in general is really good for kids learning about money and, and for, you know, their, their stress. But when, when times are hard that they know, they, you know, they, you as the parents are in in charge of it all and it's all going to work out and they don't need to worry about it, but it can also make them more understanding when you say no to purchases or they can they can get on board with the you know tighter family budget maybe you need to make family cutbacks and it can become more of a team thing than a a struggle between parents and kids um and then kids from your financial struggles they can learn really important lessons because they will most likely go through hard financial times themselves later too you know a lot of us do it one time or another and so it can be really helpful for them to see demonstrated, oh, okay, so you can make cutbacks or, you know, just various coping strategies that you're using, they can learn from those. And it gives them a realistic idea of, you know, just how financially difficult life can be sometimes. So so on the latter example here, mm-hmm. is there a certain age that you guys have seen through your research that a child might be mature enough to process that? There's financial difficulties or stress? I don't know about financial difficulties or stress specifically in terms of age, but um, teaching kids about money in general, we found that even like toddlers, preschools are already Mm. learning basic financial behaviors, financial attitudes, financial knowledge. So whenever parents ask me, you know, how young should I start trying to teach my kids about money? Like literally as early as possible. Like when Mm. they're a toddler, you can already give them, you know, very small amounts of money and kids that young already can practice allocating money to different places or saving for, you know, 18 years is just beyond their capacity, but maybe, you know, saving up to buy a bigger toy. They can see that when we don't spend money immediately, we can get bigger things or, you know, mm-hmm. or giving kids that young, especially can, um, can really internalize generosity and it can actually become a really like fun thing for them. So, um, Whatever financial 
topic or um, or financial uh, distress or difficulties in the family, I would say every at every age should it be um, happening, but always we want to be doing it in a developmentally appropriate way. So for example, you wouldn't try to explain to your five-year-olds um, the difference between a traditional and a Roth IRA, right? They That's beyond them. It doesn't you know, they're, that's not going <laughs> to end well, but, um, but you can teach them about investing and how money can grow or, you know, so, so I guess to answer your question about the financial stress, a five-year-old might not understand, you know, exactly all the reasons why, but they, you know, they'll understand that we, you know, money's a little tight. We don't have as much money as we sometimes do. And so these are the things we're doing about it and we'll be okay. Mm. I really like your idea of being open to let your children know that there's some financial stress. Where's the balance between offloading that stress to the children, like the financial enmeshment versus a healthy conversation? Because I agree, like letting your kids aware because they're feeling it anyways, Being mm-hmm. making them aware can help them with developing good habits. But in your research, have you seen when it can get negative towards, like I said, the financial enmeshment? So... Yeah, I think the reason for financial disclosure and openness about families' finances should be for the purposes of teaching kids. Mm-hmm. It should and kid it should be very clear always that the family's finances are the parents' job, that kids never feel like that's their responsibility. So that should be like a learning opportunity for them and not something that is in any way their responsibility to figure out. So that's probably the distinction that I mm. uh, would put on that. Yeah, no, that's great. Is who is it serving? Is it serving me to relieve stress or am I trying to help my children? Yes, definitely. That's yeah. As you were talking, I, I was thinking maybe earlier when you're talking that uh, I, I need to name this title, this podcast, something like the good enough parenting money advice podcast <laughs> <laughs> episode. Yeah, yeah it was great. And over, over the Christmas break, my wife and I want to watch some movies and I have never watched this movie, but Bad Mums. And I don't know if you've seen it. I love it. I, I recommend it. I'm, I don't watch too many <laughs> movies, but I ended up watching Bad Mums too as well. It was really good. But essentially, <laughs> it's the good enough mom. Yeah. And, and I like that advice around money is that it doesn't have to be perfect. Good enough. I, I like that term. Nice. Yeah, super interesting and super important because we are creating these children. They look up to us with their whole worlds. And I like how you brought up earlier that it doesn't matter if we're not talking to them about money. They are learning by watching and feeling the stress, the non-stress, the everything around money. So, by the way, that applies more to just financial, you know, financial topics like saving or budgeting, but also just general financial values and attitudes or like your money story. Like kids are also picking up on that. So, you know, just regardless of you know imparting all that, you know, this financial knowledge and financial literacy to our kids, um, you know, parents, yeah, are, are definitely also passing on, like you said, like, are people more important than money? Or, um, you know, what is, what is money like a tool for? Why do we want money? Um, mm. You know, think, things like that. So anyway, yes, I think those kinds of things also kids are picking up from parents, whether they're intentional or not. But when parents are intentional, I think they can, pass on some really important, uh, you know, just values about money and ways of thinking about money that surpass just, you know, the nitty gritty of finances. 
Yeah, the 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 story behind money. I mean, in our family, money. Have you come across resources that parents could utilize? Because you made a really interesting distinction at the top of this conversation. Is that there's so many agencies and organizations trying to develop financial literacy to enter into the schools and so forth. But if our biggest impact is the parents, have you come across any resources in your research that parents could utilize if they want to, I guess, sharpen their skills? Mm, Good question. There's a great book that I read that I thought was really good. It's called The Opposite of Spoiled. That was a good one. I'm hoping that as you know, more of this research comes out and that we as researchers do a good job of spreading the research so it doesn't just stay in the ivory tower, that um, there's there's some things happening that where financial literacy courses are trying to involve parents more because they're realizing mm-hmm. that the vast majority of financial education programs don't have a long-term impact, but financial parenting does. And so if that, you know, they're, they're trying to wed those more and involve parents more because they're realizing how important that ongoing, you know, daily influence over 18 years, of course that, you know, is going to matter. So I'm just hoping in the, in the broader culture and sphere that people are thinking about parents more when they're thinking about financial education and how to improve financial literacy. But yeah, there's there's honestly not a ton of resources mm-hmm. yet that have um, have already gotten there. So yeah, be, besides that book, I guess there's so many programs out there that are targeted to individuals trying to you know enhance your own financial literacy. So I guess if parents want to brush up themselves on anything mm-hmm. that they hope their kids know when they're adults, that would probably mm-hmm. be smart. So well, maybe you guys have a new project at uh, your university is creating the good enough parenting money guide. And then you can send <laughs> it out a, to us. That's a great idea. Well, the University of Arizona is actually one of the first right now there. And partly because of the research that we've been doing there, they're piloting right now a program that involves uh, like teenagers and parents and teaches parents about money, teaches teenagers about money, but then most importantly, teaches parents how to teach their teenagers about mm, money because that's wow. going to keep going beyond the program. So yeah. I'm really excited about that. Wow. I don't want to open up a whole conversation around couples and money because that's a whole nother topic. What would you say though? So, I mean, this isn't done in isolation when we start modeling financial behaviors to our kids and doing experiential learning with our kids. Couples start dating because they're attracted to each other. They go on dates, they find it fun, they dress up, make it attractive, and then they get married or they have kids and then they start getting bills and like, so what what do you value about money? And it's just, <laughs> Yeah. Yes. We're we're very much ingrained by the time we have that money conversation. This is a big topic, but in the context of talking with children, it might have caused the conversation to realize that maybe our money dialogues don't align. What would you say to people, and I'm sorry to ask you in such a short time, but if, if there's a couple, which there are many couples who don't see eye to eye or having a block around money, yeah. let's pick on one specific thing in financial conflict that you have seen in your research that can help reduce that blockage. Um, yes. And this could actually be applied to just you know a mismatch or a conflict about any topic is that the more that you can, that couples can work together as a team and approach their money as equal partners with equal power in decision making, even if they, you know, don't agree, if they can find some sort of compromise. And then at the end of the day, they're doing this together as a team. It's not, there's no blaming. It's not, you know, everything's not your fault. 
we decided this together. And then of course, couples would have to actually respect that decision and actually, um, you know, follow that, you know, whether it's a budget or, um, spending decisions or whatever, but we've anyway, yes, the couple finance research, we've found that couples who have equal power in like spending decisions, couples who have joint bank accounts, basically couples who are approaching their money together as a team tend to do better. Another piece of that, there's an, it's a really fun new, I think, uh, area that's being studied is financial infidelity Mm. is what we're calling it. And a surprisingly large amount of couples have financial infidelity going on, which, you know, doesn't have to be big, but even just, you know, hiding purchases from your spouse or having like a, you know, a little stash away that they don't know about anything like that. We're seeing actually really negative consequences for relationships, almost to the point of like the seriousness of sexual infidelity and the negative consequences that has that, Basically, you know, the the message that that sends is that you don't trust your partner or you're not actually a team about this or, um, you know, various reasons. So I would just encourage couples to really reflect on whether they're engaging in any of that financial infidelity. If so, why? And how, how much they actually are acting like equal partners in their financial decisions. That equal, that equality, I feel like is just so critically important. And I mean, you started with that and... I think just hearing what you're saying, if someone has tendencies of acting in that in the financial infidelity, I like your point of what's the cause of that. And I think it's a both perspective is why would my spouse be doing that? What am I doing? Am I not allowing power? Am I not letting a voice be heard? And it's easy to take a victim being like, wow, look what they did. They, I know you bought that. Like, oh, this is come out, take the clothes out of the closet and be like, no, no, this is not new. This I've had this for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's probably deep seated financial conflict, as you know, has, you know, it's different than other types of conflict because money is so what, you know, our deep values are so tied to it. And it's, you know, it's also has power, um, you know, it's a power symbol. And so there's all sorts of things that make financial conflict really um, well, I should say, everyone, of course, you know, good discussions and even uh, disagreements about money are really good. But when there's really negative financial conflict, that's, that's just really Mm -hmm. bad for relationships for, you know, kids and stuff like that. And so it's, you know, really important for couples to be first aware of the really important like ideas that you talk about in terms of what is my story with money? What is, you know, what is, what are my cognitive processes with money? Why do I make the money decisions I do? And, and if couples can, you know, individually understand their money values and choices better, and then talk together about, you know, so do we have a mismatch in values here? You know, why are we having this financial conflict? How can we compromise? How can we respect each other more? And, and anyway, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That communication, the equality, just so, so important. Maybe there's a, an, another approach to this program that you guys can build for based on this podcast at your university is, is the program is actually teaching the children about money, but s- underneath it's getting the parents to open up and start talking about money. So there you guys, you guys can <laughs> you create a, a parenting program that helps the kids, but it's actually helping mom and dad. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> My last question is I usually ask, imagine yourself at 90 years old, looking back at your life writing a letter to your children's children, but before we record it, you don't have any children. But if you just were writing a letter to your future's children's children or 
with the wisdom that you learned throughout your life about money and a relationship to money, it could be around parenting, children, whatever that is. What would you write in that letter? Ooh, I think my number one piece of advice would be to be intentional. So whether that's about your own finances or teaching your kids about money or talking to your, you know, handling money with a partner or spouse, whatever it is, I think too often all of us go through life just kind of on autopilot and we don't actually stop and think, you know, does my budget and how I'm spending my money actually reflect what I care about? Or, you know, is how I'm treating my spouse or, um, you know, or the ways that we talk about money aligned with what we actually care about? Or am I passing on to my kids, you know, values that are, that I actually care about. So just being intentional, of course, is, you know, as humans, we're not going to be perfect and our actions are sometimes going to differ from, you know, what, what we would actually want ourselves to do. But, but I think the more that we just try and put forth an honest effort in trying to live intentionally, have that reflection about, Am I living my life the way that I actually truly deep down want to? And if not, like what changes big or small do I need to make to, so that at the end of the day and at the end of the life, I'm, you know, happy and don't have regrets about, about just living on autopilot, living the way that my neighbors live, or, you know, even living the way that my parents lived and not actually stopping to think whether it was how I wanted to. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Financial regrets is something that I think is over a lifetime is one of the biggest regrets people can have. So that intentionality helps, you know, just in closing, this conversation is making me think about people think about generational wealth, building that generation wealth, but what, what an immense power, just the education, our teaching our kids about our values around money actually can go generation to generation because as we know, stories are so powerful and they preserve cultures and they certainly for generations can preserve our money story. And it doesn't have to be about buying the biggest and best thing. It could be about that intentionality you talked about. Yeah. Love that. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me on this conversation. I appreciate it. We'll have to talk about couples one day. And (laughs) I mean, you gave a really good insight there for the last 10 minutes, but uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I love having these conversations, learning and getting insight from people like Ashley. Thank you for tuning in. If you've been enjoying these episodes and hearing from guests like Ashley, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Until next week, have a great one.